Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Midwatch. Uh, as always, I appreciate you guys uh, tuning in and, and taking time out of your day uh, to listen to some of the stories that I have to share on this podcast. Um, as always, uh, if you guys want to support the podcast, head over to www.bzgear.com. Um, you can check out t-shirts, sweatshirts, uh, water bottles, some other accessories that we have on the website. Uh, that's a, a great way to support the podcast, and it's always greatly appreciated. Also, uh, this podcast is supported by 22kill.com. Uh, 22kill is a veterans organization um, slash charity uh, that helps raise awareness uh, for the suicide <clears throat> among veterans and first responders. Uh, obviously, the number 22 comes from the, the uh, statistic that came out uh, that 22 veterans uh, commit suicide a day. And this organization was also a part of creating the uh, 22 push-up challenge that kind of uh, went widespread throughout social media. Uh, also, this podcast is brought to you by Flipside Canvas. Um, that is a canvas uh, art company that is uh, owned and operated by the Medal of Honor recipient Dakota Meyer. Um, great artwork on that website. Uh, a lot of patriotic stuff. Um, he also has a couple other uh, types of, of lines of different artwork um, that you can pick up on that website. So uh, please go ahead and check them out at flipsidecanvas.com. Um, all the links to those will be in the description of this podcast. Uh, on today's podcast, we have a uh, truly um, American hero. Um, I find myself saying that about every guest I have on here, but you know, they're it's true. You know, we we have a lot of heroes that that walk amongst us every day that that we may not realize. Um, Tyler uh, was a corpsman, uh, FMF corpsman uh, who deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and tragically, a, a couple days before heading home on his uh, what would have what would be his last deployment, um, his truck hit an IED um, where he unfortunately lost uh, both of his lower legs. Um, but he never let that, uh, kind of take over his life. Um, and he, uh, you know, after, you know, several years of treatments and, and surgeries, um, he ended up, uh, picking up a snowboard, um, and pursuing, a a career in snowboarding, um, and eventually got onto the Paralympic, uh, U.S. team, um, in Sochi where he competed in the Olympics and, uh, he still competes to this day. So I, I really hope you guys enjoy this podcast. It's an amazing and inspirational story. Um, you know, a, a time where life pretty much got as worse as it possibly could. Um, he did not let it, you know, get him down, and, and he kept charging forward. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I did, and uh, we'll get right into it. Hey, good morning. How you doing, man? There we go. I couldn't hear you. I turned my volume up. How's it going, man? Good. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Just getting the uh, got a almost one year old daughter who's super active almost all the time, but especially in the morning. So the, <laughs> my fiance was just taking her out for getting her out of the house, so we, it wasn't too loud in the background. Oh, okay. Um, is, is she your only uh, only child? You just have the one? Yeah. Yeah. My my first. My one and only. Nice. So far. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have a, uh, I have two little monsters. I have uh, my son; he's four, and, and my daughter is uh, like two and a half. Oh, awesome, awesome, man! Kids are incredible. It's changed your life, and definitely so many ways. Almost all of them good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pretty much everything but the bank account. 
<laughs> yeah, bank account and sleep and <laughs> pretty much it. So, um, you know, I just want to start off by saying uh, I really appreciate, um, you know, you're, you're taking the time out of your uh, weekend to, um, to, to do this with me. I've reached out to, like, a lot of people since I've started, um, and honestly, a lot of people haven't responded. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, A, that you responded, and um, I, I just want to say, start out by saying I, I really, really appreciate it. Hey, sure thing. I appreciate uh, uh the opportunity, you know, and it's, I'm proud of what you're doing, man. It's good to see uh, a sailor on active duty. Uh, you got a full-time job, taking time out of your schedule to uh, delve into the stories of veterans and, and uh, yeah, listen to some of your other casts, and, and I think what you're doing is good. And, so it's, yeah, a, it's, it's great, man. It's pretty funny. Um, I saw that you just posted that Facebook post a few, uh, like an hour ago, and um, do you know uh, Bo Chandler? I, I guess he yeah he said he yeah served. so he was yeah he was one of my uh, junior corpsmen when he right out of uh, uh, hospital corps school when he got to his first permanent duty station it was three six that's really cool so he I um I served with well not directly with him but uh, my last command I worked at the clinic in Kings Bay the submarine base mm-hmm. and um I worked uh, in military medicine with the UMO and he was the DMT for the divers on base and he worked with UMO pretty much all the time. So I, I always saw him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doc Chandler and me, we were in Afghanistan together. Uh, we were in the same, yeah, same company when I got hurt. He had a different platoon. I was a senior line then, but, uh, yeah, I've known, I've known Bud Chandler for a couple of years now. That's really, it's really a super small world. It is. Uh, it is. Especially in the hospital core. <laughs> So, um, you know, obviously I, I want to get in, into your story because, you know, it, um, yeah, it's truly amazing and, and definitely inspirational. Um, ever since I, I heard you speak at the Corman Ball last year, um, you were one of the first people I had in mind when I decided to start this to, to try to get on because, you know, your speech at the Corman Ball really stuck with me. Um, I've been in the Navy for almost six years, uh, only two years of that I've been a Corman. Um, I was a radioman on submarines uh, for the first four years, um, and then I ended up cross-rating to corpsman. Um, but uh, obviously, this I'm gonna, I'm gonna obviously make this podcast about you. So I kind of want to hear, um, you know, your story before the military. Kind of, you know, any any sports you're involved with in high school, or kind of what life was like for you, um, you know, before the military. Yeah, sure. So uh, my family traveled a lot. I was born in Salt Lake City. And uh, my my mom's from here, and uh, oh god, when I was like four, uh, my dad moved us to South Texas, and that's kind of where he grew up. He grew up in Galveston, we moved to Port Aransas, Texas, and spent most of my childhood there on the coast, uh, sailing, surfing, fishing. Um, that's kind of why we moved down there. My dad loves to sail, and always had a sailboat, and uh, we, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, on the water down there. Is that pretty? Um, pretty close to like Corpus Christi or yeah it's on, it's just on the uh, beach side of Corpus Christi okay. so it, it basically is Corpus Christi uh, Bay Area and is that where you went through high school and all that I'm, I'm assuming down there no, well no, no. almost so okay. when I let's see halfway through my ninth grade year uh, December of 95 my parents moved to Saudi Arabia and uh, God, they were there for like 20 years. But I was there for ninth grade, and then uh, there's no American 
uh, high schools in Saudi Arabia. Not then. I think there is now, but in the 90s there wasn't. So the company my dad worked for uh, paid for boarding school. So I went to a little fancy little boarding school in Salzburg, Austria. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So um, were they like in like the oil business, I'm assuming, or your parents? No, or, or, or? no my dad is a physician. He's an emergency room doctor, um, which is probably why I ended up becoming a corpsman when I decided <laughs> to join the Navy. Um, it, was, it was his medical background and his advice and influence. Um, but yeah, he was just wanted to try something new. Um, I think he was a little bit disenfranchised with the healthcare system in the U.S. Um, but... Uh, yeah, he wanted to try something new, and he took a part-time job over in our locum tenens, uh, as they call it, over in Saudi Arabia for three months. And yeah, he liked the work, and it was an interesting place and an interesting opportunity for the family. And so yeah, he took it, and he ended up. My parents really liked it there, and uh, they just came back oh, three years ago, I think. Yeah. So what was that like for you? Um, I mean, so you, I mean, you're a young teenager and in ninth grade, so kind of moving from you know the states you know to the other side of the world and then having to move again by yourself to another you know uh country that you know you you still don't know it's it's not native yeah. to you and then like going through boarding school like kind of what, what was that like you know it's um it definitely gives you a different perspective um about the world and um you know when you live in another culture and in other countries learn the language a little bit um yeah, it definitely, it was a good experience, you know. That was also frustrating at times, you know, being being out of the house and being out kind of in the world a little bit. Um, so I think it forced me to grow up a little bit. Um, and then, uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I got into drinking a little bit too early, I suppose. The drinking laws over in Austria are pretty slim. <laughs> pretty, pretty... Well, even then, it was not enforceable. So I think yet legally you have to be like 16 to drink. Oh, okay. Uh, beer and wine and cider at the bar, and 18 for hard liquor or whatever. But you know, it was interesting. I mean, starting in high school, we'd go to cafes, and it wasn't unusual to sit down and and have a beer and do homework. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So and and so yeah, and it was just it was really weird. It was um. Yeah, and then coming back to the states after that uh, was a big struggle because you're used to this lifestyle. Like, oh, you know, I can you pretty much can do whatever you want, and you're an adult in Europe. Um, when you're 18, you you know you can go do anything, and then you come back to the states and you can't order a beer, can't have a glass of wine, at, you know, with your with your meal or whatever. And so it's it's, it's yeah, it, it it was a little bit hard to to comprehend as, as a youngster. Were you the um? <laughs> Were you like the only uh, American at the school, or, or was there some other guys that you could, you know, were able to bond with a little bit that were also kind of in the same yeah, situation so you were? It was an um, it was an American boarding school, and uh, but it was pretty small. There was, uh, there was, yeah, four high school years, and then they did two. They had two years before four high school, like seventh and eighth grade. Um, so in all of those grades, there was only like 140 of us there. I think my senior class there was 24 of us. Um, and like 90 different nationalities in the school, so there was, there, you know, there was a large group of Americans. There was more Americans than any other specific group, but even then, there was only like maybe 15 of us. Um, there were students from 
Canada and Poland, Germany, Austria, um, a lot of the Eastern European countries, some uh, South Africans, um, New Zealanders, yeah, Kiwis, Australians. Would you definitely say that that that, that having that kind of experience, kind of at a young age, you know, being around such diversity like that, um, kind of helped you like in your adult years, like later on, kind of giving you like a different aspect on the world? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. It definitely, I think, gave me a much more open-minded um, uh, view on the world. <laughs> so, what, so what brought you back? Um, so you, you graduate high school. What year did you graduate high school? 99. 99. So what yeah. brought you back, um, you know, instead of going, did you go back to Saudi Arabia to, to live back with your parents or did you yeah. come no, back? I came back to the States and uh, enrolled at the University of Utah. Uh, in the fall of 99 came back to Salt Lake City uh, for the mountains I, was, I always yeah I always missed the mountains growing up we had family here and so my parents we would always come back for the holidays Christmas and whatnot to visit family and uh, we did a lot of skiing and then also when I was in boarding school we did you know we were in Austria so big right. skiing there um, so skiing and snowboarding has just always been one of my passions and um yeah, when it was time to go to college, I chose the University of Utah for the mountains and and uh, started there and got a job as a snowboard instructor uh, at Snowbird that winter. And yeah, my passion for snowboarding definitely uh, outweighed my my drive to get through school. And uh, <laughs> after a year at the University of Utah, I quick yeah I didn't re-enroll um, and just kind of did the ski bum thing <laughs> for a couple of years so did you like continue that job as being like an instructor yeah I worked as an instructor for a couple of seasons I worked lifts um, uh, worked at a couple different resorts you know I, 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 I kind of bounced around a little bit as, as the young ski bum type seems to do you know I don't know why uh, people in that lifestyle and age group don't seem to stick with the same job for more than a season or two. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just really bounced around a lot, and I think probably I was used to moving just because my family was always moving. Um, but So I did that for about three years, and then my, my parents, uh, my dad built a uh, really beautiful sailing catamaran, uh, you know, during the time that, oh, I guess he started building it in the late 90s. Um, a buddy of his actually built it, built it. Uh, who's a professional boat builder, but not on a large commercial scale. It's, it's just one guy um, from Zimbabwe, actually, uh, uh, and uh, just one helper in the shop. And but he built this 50-foot catamaran. And when he finished building that boat, my brother had finished high school, and uh, my dad wanted to, to do some sailing, and so we took some time to go sailing with him and then he had to go back to work my brother and I stayed on the boat for a couple of years so we sailed that thing from Texas out to the Bahamas and all over the Florida Keys and mostly in the Gulf Coast and, and back to Texas and so we lived in St. Pete on the boat for a year and went back to Port Aransas, Texas and lived there for a year or two off and on um, through the early 2000s and, uh, yeah, I just kind of bounced around like that until about 2006 when I decided to join the Navy, and I was 25. So what so, 
Um, different story, different path than most uh, enlisted sailors. You know, most I think I think the the norm is to graduate high school, and if you're going to enlist in the military, you you do it right then and there. Yeah, do it right then, right when you're 18. And uh, that wasn't yeah. That's just not how it worked out for me. Yeah, I definitely. Um, uh, so I, I joined a little bit older, not not as old as you. I joined when I was 22, um, mm-hmm. and at first I kind of um, like regretted it. Not well, I shouldn't say regretted it, but I kind of wish I did it earlier because you know I was going through A school and then like all of my instructors were like the same age as me, but like career wise, like they were so much more ahead, you know. So mm-hmm. it you know it was kind of um, I guess aggravating. Aggravating wouldn't be the right word, but. Um, it's something that I kind of wish I did, you know, right out of high school. Um, but on the flip side of that, at the longer I stayed in, I kind of realized that kind of coming in a little bit more mature and, and having, you know, um, a real life job, you know, before the Navy and stuff kind of actually helped me a little bit, you know, it, in my career. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a little harder to relate because you're a few years older than your peers, you know, and especially me, you know, I was in my mid 20s, so. I got a pretty hard time. One of my best buddies, actually, uh, Doc by the name of Paul Gossett. I hope he's actually listening. That'd be great if he is. <laughs> um, but he came in. I think he was in his oh, late twenties, early thirties um, when he joined, and naturally we became best friends. I think a lot in part because we were older than everybody else. Right. But uh, oh man, I thought I had a hard at twenty-five. <laughs> try it. Try it. You know, kicking it with a bunch of eighteen-year-old Marines when you're in your, you know, you're te- a decade older than them. And, right. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it was pretty funny, and it was, and it was awesome. I mean, that guy is one of the best corpsmen I've ever worked with. So, but, uh, uh, kind of, kind of backing up a little bit. So, what made you um, uh, decide to join? Like, was there like a certain you know, um instance that like happened or did you just kind of wake yeah, up yeah yeah kind of definitely i um i mean over the i think i just i'd gotten a little lost in my life and i'd gotten a little wrapped up in uh oh alcohol and pro- you know maybe a little illicit drug use <laughs> <laughs> which obviously i didn't tell my recruiter about <laughs> but um yeah i just I just was kind of at a point in my life where I was a little bit uh, lost, and I, I didn't know where I was going. I knew I I didn't want to um, just you know continue. I mean, I love skiing, but I wanted to have a career, and I wanted to have a family one day. And I, you know, I was just getting to a point where I realized that I, I needed to make a decision. And um, going back to school just didn't just didn't fit for me, and. Um, and I wanted to do. I wanted to do something. I wanted to be part of something um, really powerful, really meaningful. And uh, I found that, you know, the, in the military, um, not so much for patriotic reasons. It wasn't that I wanted to go serve my country. It was more that I wanted to belong to uh, an organization that that was um, really tight knit, you know, and and really motivated and and doing hard work for not a lot of, I didn't want recognition or I didn't want a lot of money. I just wanted, uh, really wanted purpose. So 
I think that was the main draw for for enlisting for me. So what brought you to the Navy? Was it, you know, you sh- that they were the only recruiter's office that was open at the time? Or, you know, sometimes there's, like, funny stories where, like, I've talked to people who are like, well, I wanted to go join the Army, but they weren't there that day, so I just went to the Navy. and Or, you know, right. or, or did you, you know, you before you even went, did you have your mindset, you know, on the Navy being a corpsman? Or? No, I, I didn't have my mindset. Um, I, I kind of was thinking that I wanted to do something in the medical field um, and but I also wanted to be, I wanted to be in a fighting unit. I, 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 yeah, there was, I was seeing all of the images, you know, Fallujah, the Battle of Fallujah just was wrapping up, and uh, seeing those guys over there inspired me. I wanted to be one of them, and so uh, I talked to everybody. I talked to the Air Force, I talked to the Army, uh, I learned about all the programs, and uh, Ultimately, special forces really caught my caught my attention, and uh, my my dream was to be a Navy SEAL, and I think and so that's what really uh, drew me to the Navy was uh, naval naval special warfare. So, what year was this when when you decided? Two thousand and six, the spring of two thousand and six. So that's like right smack in the middle of the heat of the war, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and so. I mean, I was a bit of a delinquent then, and when I was in the delayed entry program, I got in a bad car accident, got charged with a DUI, um, which I ended up uh, luckily getting the judge to dismiss it, mostly based on the fact that I was joining the service, and he was like, oh, yeah, they'll they'll straighten you out more than a year of probation will, so. (laughs) Oh, wow. But it cost me, so when I first enlisted, I I was on the SEAL challenge. Program SEAL Challenge contract. Okay. To come in, go, it was like a pipeline. Go, go to boot camp. Go to. Um, I would have still gone to hospital core school actually, because uh, Corman is one of the base rates for SEAL, mm-hmm. and uh, so I would have gone to hospital core school and then mm-hmm. buds right after that. But uh, yeah, that that little car accident and that that poor mistake cost me. Uh, cost me that and. Uh, so the recruiters are like, well, yeah, you know, you can't do that, and uh, but there's, uh, you know, you can go serve with the Marines, and I didn't even know that hospital corpsman served uh, with the Marine Corps then, and uh, he started telling me about that program and talking about, uh, you know, I had told him that my, you know, I wanted to join the Navy because I wanted to help kind of get my life together, and I, I needed some discipline, and and uh, he said, you know, yeah, you know, me go be a corpsman maybe four years if you stay out of trouble and, and uh, yeah, keep your nose at the grindstone, then you can re-enlist and maybe you get another shot at mm-hmm. going to butts. And so and that's um, that's what I decided to do. And, yeah. Because yeah. at that, at that time, SEAL wasn't a rate yet, right? You still had to go to, like, your A school and then go become a a seal right that's how that yeah. worked yeah 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 it, it was right i think they changed it in 2007 it was right on the yeah right in that transition period okay and i don't know if you had to have a rate to go to buds then i don't but it definitely helped because yeah, um the if uh, at the end of the um, 
uh, what movie was that? The one with Mark Wahlberg about Marcus Luttrell. I, I can't remember the name of the movie. But if if you look at the end, they like they have the list of all the seals that died, and like mm-hmm. all of them, you know, it's it's like all like different rates throughout the Navy. Yeah, they're not SO. SO, yeah. Yeah, they're HM2, yeah, or whatever. So yeah, gunner's mate. So yeah, you did have to have a base rate, but you didn't. Man, ne- I can't even you didn't necessarily that. go do that. A long time ago. Um, <laughs> But I know that I, yeah, I would have had to go to core school before I went to BUDS. So was, um, did they ever bring up like recon or, or MARSOC or anything like that to you? They kind of, you know. Yeah, was... yeah, they, they, they did. And uh, God, when I got to field med, my, uh, my instructors there just inspired me to want to be with the grunts, to be with the Marine Inf- Infantry Battalion. Um, and you know, I was like, oh yeah, SEAL. You know, I, I still wanted to do the Navy SEAL thing, but um, when I got to field med at Camp, Camp Johnson in uh, North Carolina, uh, Petty Officer Book, HM1 Book, he, yeah, he just absolutely inspired me to want to be a grunt corpsman um, more than anything else, and. Um, and so that's what I did, and I graduated uh, field med, um, in the top I don't know five percent of the class or whatever. And we got you know I could have chose any any unit. I could have gone to the air wing or you know wherever anywhere in second marine division. But uh, yeah, I wanted to go to an infantry battalion, and I wanted to go to the first deploying unit, and that was third battalion, six marines. And so yeah, that's where I went and, and stayed with them for yeah my entire well. Yeah, so I got blown up. <laughs> so when did you? Till the end of my career. Um, when did you go to boot camp? What? December of two thousand and six. Okay, and uh, obviously up in Great Lakes. What What was that like? Um, you know, going in being being older. Uh... Um, you know, it was tough. It, it was tough because. The, I think the drill instructors expect a little more out of you, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're like, all right, you know, you're you're not fresh out of high school. You have, you've been out of mom and dad's house for a couple of years. You're gonna you got to pick up some of the sl- the the slack, I guess. You know, and so you, um, I was always in one of the leadership positions. I think I actually filled them all <laughs> at one point or another. Um, I was yeah, the RPOC, the AROC. I, was rogue guard for a time. <laughs> um, yeah, boot camp was interesting. It wasn't as it wasn't as difficult physically challenging as as I thought it would be. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of fun actually. <laughs> and then uh, after that, except for the ironing your underwear in the middle of the night, that was I think the one thing that I just <laughs> almost broke me. <laughs> I love my sleep and I. Can't, you know, I, I get the, the training value and waking mm-hmm. people up in the middle of the night and making them do some mundane tasks. But <laughs> and there's 80 of you. I, I, I had a hard time get, getting with the program when it came to ironing my tidy whities at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Especially when there's like three ironing boards and 80 people who need to do it. Uh, yeah, and they're all burned out. There's like starch, <laughs> char cake to the bottom of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
So after boot camp, you go to FMTB, or I'm sorry, you go to uh, core, school core School first, right? Yeah. Core School, also there in Great Lakes. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then FMTB. Although then it was FMSS. I was, the, I think that was the last class before they, or maybe the, we were the first class when they renamed it. Anyways, it was Field Medical Service School. Mm-hmm. Then right that yeah, in 2007, I think they changed it to FMTB. But, so was, uh, was there a yeah. di- was there a different um, did they like kind of change the cr- the curriculum on that? You know, to kind of alter it to you know the the new challenges of, of the war that we were in. Because I had a uh, an H and one O'Hare uh, on my podcast who um, he went through in, in like two thousand through F. Brian O'Hare, uh, John O'Hare. Oh, I, I served with O'Hare. Um, and he was kind of saying like FMS, FMSS. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. It was kind of just like uh, he was like what you saw like on Mash, like you just kind of set up tents and like that was kind of it. And you know, obviously FMTB is a lot different than that. Um, mm-hmm. So is that pretty much what it was? It was just kind of changing the curriculum to kind of accustom it to more of you know what we were seeing over there. You know, I think so. I, for me, I thought it was it was pretty intense. It was kind of like a little miniature Marine Corps boot camp, but you got the nights and weekends off. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, shooting and weapons tactics. Um, FMO, you know, mer- corpsmen serving with the Marines, especially infantry Marines, need to be familiar with all of the systems. So you learn uh, communications systems, you learn the radios, you learn um, most of the weapon systems, but, you know, obviously not uh, some of the heavy weapons. We didn't mess around with uh, the heavy machine guns or, or mortars or anything, but... Um, Although you get to do that once you get to your unit. So were a lot of your instructors there kind of, you know, just rotating, you know, from sea duty, you know, to their shore duty as an instructor? Exactly. Um, exactly. It's, yeah, the sea, part of the seashore rotations for the Navy instructors. And so you have two you have two instructors. You have the Navy side of the house and Marine Corps side of the house. And every uh, um, company in the class has, yeah, the two instructors, one Navy corpsman, usually a first class, and then a Marine staff sergeant um, are your two instructors. And so the, the doc teaches you all the medical stuff, well, and a lot of weapons and tactics, and and then the Marines, you know, they focus mostly on the weapons and tactics, but they, those guys, they know a lot of medicine too, you know, good corpsmen train their Marines, and and I'm, and, uh, I'm assuming a lot of your instructors were just kind of rotating, you know, pretty much yeah, off so the battlefield. Yeah, so they had just come back from battlefield. <laughs> HMM Book uh, was in Fallujah okay. um, in 2004. And, um, yeah, he was back from that and, uh, yeah, doing his B-billet and recovering, you know, recovering from from uh, that deployment. Yeah. So what was FMT, uh, FM, FMTB like for you? Um, so it, it, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it was fun. You know, you, they, you wake up early, PT. Um, it's a lot of PT and a, and a lot of classroom work and a, and a lot of it at the same time. And we, we'd wake up in PT and then we'd go to our first class. But in the first class, I mean, if you got an answer wrong, you had to do push-ups or, <laughs> or you know, eight-count bodybuilders or, you know, if, if the whole class was being stupid, then you'd go outside and carry each other around, drag each other through the mud, and then come back in and study anatomy and 
put in IVs and then go back out and get sweaty, dirty, and tired and come back come back into the classroom and and uh, yeah, do book work and uh, it was high paced and uh, and you know never a dull moment for sure. I think that was training wise uh, that eight weeks went by faster than than any other training uh, I had while I was in. It was. Yeah, it was fast and furious, you know, and you just kind of work up through each of the basic skills the first couple weeks, you know, you're focusing on, like, you know, just getting familiar with the M16 and um, packing your, your gear for the field um, and, you know, just getting oriented, oriented with the equipment that you're going to use when you're serving with the Marines. And then you slowly transition into going out into the field and doing operations, and they have, you know, uh, areas set up for different types of training exercises where you know you're actually assaulting a position and then taking care of casualties and um, really kind of mimicking what you're going to be doing uh, when you get to get get with the Marines. Was there like a specific like kind of eye-opening moment in FMTB because you know how you, you kind of said earlier you know you, you didn't really realize that like you know Quinman served with the Marines. Um, what or did you kind of already understand it before you even got to FMTB, like what you would actually be doing, like with the Marines? I mean, I yeah, I, I guess I was, I had already started. You know, you when you're in boot camp, you know, you mm. talk about all the Medal Honor winners, and a lot of those guys are are corpsmen. Right. And uh, so you so as soon as you're in get to boot camp, you kind of start to learn a little bit about the the FMF rate, but or corpsmen serving with the Marines. and But it doesn't, it, yeah, it definitely did not hit me fully until, um, yeah, until I got to that school. And uh, I guess is what really got me is I could see in my instructor's eyes, in HM1 books' eyes, how um, serious he was, you know, he, how, how much, I mean, it was just—it was plainly apparent that he knew he was training us for uh, to do our jobs in the in the in the worst circumstances that you can imagine. And and a lot of the corpsmen that went through that school went on to save save lives. And um, some of those corpsmen gave their own life trying to do the same. And. Um, you don't when you're you know in the navy not everybody sees sees combat when you're in the military there's probably only you know 1% or 2% of the of those that are on active duty that actually really see combat and um that doesn't you you see that you know in boot camp you know your your drill instructors are you know trying to teach you about the seriousness of it you know but every Everybody's not. I'm not. I don't want to say they're not taking it seriously, but it, it's not. It's not life, life or death. You know, a lot right. of the a lot of those recruits are going to go on to work in um, supply buildings or you know on the equipment of a ship. You know, and they're going to be mechanics or they're going to work on airframes or electricians. And and so having this, you know, everything you do is is everybody's life depends on it and I mean it does you're working on high-tech systems with a lot of power and moving 
massive amounts of machinery and ordnance around all the time, and absolutely, it's a dangerous environment. But it's it's not the same as when you're going on patrol into Fallujah, you right? Know, with twelve of your with twelve of your buddies. Yeah, the the gravity of the situation is definitely a little, a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, and uh, HM1 book conveyed that. You know, it, it was you got to school, and of course, you know, as before you class up and the instructors show up, everybody's, you know, kind of talking about where they've been and what they've been doing, and it's, you know, light and kind of fun. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be this is gonna be fun. We're going to get to shoot some guns. We can blow mm-hmm. some stuff up. And then right. HM1 book shows up, and now it's not about shooting some guns and blowing stuff up anymore. Now it's about saving lives, saving, mm-hmm. saving Marines, and saving civilians. Right. Uh, Afghans and Iraqis and you know whatever poor people happen to be caught in between (laughs) Marines and whoever they're after. Right. Would I be um, you know safe to assume that kind of this is one of the good instances where you know coming in a little bit older was was definitely better because you know like you said most people are are 17, 18 years old and and all they want to do is go be Rambo Um, but you know you being a little bit older could definitely you know a pick up on like the hints and, and and kind of like the um the the messages that like your instructors were, were conveying and then you know also you know you're a lot older you watch the news stuff like that you know that these young teenagers may not and you know you, you can definitely understand the the gravity of the situation a, a little bit more what, what is that like a safe assumption to say oh absolutely yeah I, yeah you're 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 all good there I, and, and, and definitely and um and even in that class i mean i don't and it wasn't i don't think it was the same for everybody and it, Excuse me. It definitely wasn't the same for everybody. Some of those those corpsmen knew they weren't going to go to a Marine Infantry Battalion. They were going to go to, you know, the Air Wing, or they're going to go to a, a aid station, or or or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is there is definitely a little bit of a divide, and and I guess that's also when I start really really knew that I finally found what I was looking for to kind of belong to this tight knit group mm-hmm. and. And that was the corpsmen that were going to go with the with the grunts, um, and then and then that was just completely solidified when I actually got to my first uh, my first unit, which was Third Battalion, Six Marines, and and that was like I had finally come home. <laughs> <laughs> it it's definitely uh, kind of going back to what you said before about you know not every you know military person is you know put put into combat. You know, my, my first four years in the Navy, you know, like I said earlier, I was in the sub submarine force, and, you know, Corman to me was just the guy at the clinic that couldn't get me my damn dental appointment that I was getting yelled at for, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I didn't even I didn't even think about, you know, we all hear you like Greenside. I, I believe my IDC on board was actually a, a Greenside Corman Chief Rios. But, um, you know, he's he didn't really talk about it, and, you know, I just kind of didn't even understand, you know, what Greenside was. And then once I get to core school... I went to core school down in San Antonio at, at the new one, um, and I see like all these chiefs walking around with like purple hearts and you know, uh, you know, names with valor and all like these high awards and and they have a wall right in the quarter deck of the school of every a picture of every corpsman that uh, that that passed away in the war and unfun- unfortunately that wall is, has a lot of pictures on it, um, and you know, kind of like my first like week or two in core school was kind of. Uh, like a real huge eye opener. Like holy, you know, like holy cow! Like this, this is what being a corpsman is not. You know, sitting at a desk behind the clinic, which is what I thought. You know, my first few years in the navy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there. It's yeah, it's and you know nobody nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're like a little secret squad. <laughs> so, so you graduate FMTB and and you show up at your uh, your your first. Um, your first Marine Command. You stayed there at Camp Lejeune, you said, right? You stayed East Coast? Camp Lejeune. Okay, okay. Yep. East Coast, Camp Lejeune, 2nd Marine Division. Um, so, let's see. Yeah, so I joined. Let me get the timeline straight. Joined in December of 2006. Got to 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines as my permanent duty station by, I want to say, November of 2007. So, almost a year after after I joined. Okay. Now you check in. Are you like, all right, like this is this is it. It's the real deal now. Like I'm here. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yes and no. I mean, that first day is met with a lot of apprehension because, um, I mean, we got there and and so our unit uh was slated to deploy in April, uh, to Fallujah, uh, April of 2008. So we're like, we got there and we're you know four months out from a nine month deployment. And we get to the we get there, and it's crazy. I mean, it's craziness, especially with the holidays coming up. Everybody's trying to get they're trying to get all this stuff done so that they can take some leave and be with their families um, over the Christmas holiday. And it was like walking into a tornado, man. <laughs> were you able yeah. to to it being so close to like deployment? Were you able to like fly to Saudi Arabia this year, parents, or or did your parents come no. to, come, come to the states? <laughs> came to I saw them they came to my graduation they came to boot camp graduation so I was able to see them then um, but no no and I, and I didn't travel back to Saudi gosh I didn't I didn't go I haven't been back there since uh, probably since after high school oh, okay yeah I can't remember if I went back I may have gone back for a few months maybe in 2000 or 2001 but I don't think so can't really. <clears throat> so did anything really uh, significant happen, you know, pretty much from the day you checked in to the time you guys deployed, or was it just all, you know, workups and, and training? Yeah, just all, all workups and training. Um, you know, yeah, nothing really significant happened, not casualty-wise. Um, you know, mostly we're just doing, like, pre-deployment physicals, making sure everybody's got their immunizations. Um and and so, and that and that was really cool, you know, because they, they were training really hard. So you're actually we we dealt with like lots of small injuries, lots of sprains, um, dislocated joints, and and uh, yeah, some concussions and and stuff, um, just from training, you know, training accidents, mishaps. I and mean, you know, the Marines are training training to fight, so that's all they do all day is fight, <laughs> hurt hurt each other. So somebody's always getting broken so you you know you see sick call every morning and uh and that was awesome because you you're going you know you go from training and and learning to immediately now you're seeing patients and you when you're a corpsman with the with the marine corps um you're your hand you know you're hands-on with your patients you've got two medical officers and you know so you got two doctors and then you know, 1,200, 1,300 Marines to take care of. And on any given day, you know, you probably you know, see in the aid station, you know, maybe 50 or even 100 patients as possible. 
And uh, so the docs don't have a lot of, the medical officers don't have a lot of time to see the patients. So immediately you're doing um, full examinations, taking a history, doing a, a physical assessment, and trying to diagnose your patients before you before you even before the medical officer even sees them. Um, and then of course you're almost you're usually wrong and the medical officer is usually happy to tell you all about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, which, it's which is good because he learned but it, it was awesome but you know I, it's almost like you just kind of throw into the throw into the wolves is almost how how it, how it feels like when, when for those first couple weeks I yeah my head was spinning on trying to learn examination techniques and learn how to yeah navigate the Marine Corps and deal with the Marines and uh, yeah it's 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 it was exciting and and uh, just super intense you know so you'd see patients and then in the afternoon you're out training training with your um, whatever company you're assigned to with your platoon and uh, we traveled a lot, you know, during the, the those four months before deployment. The Marine unit were all over. We tr went to we were in California, um, Twenty Nine Palms for a Mojave Viper, which is a month long training exercise, basically simulating a urban assault, and um, you know, it's and it's a multi. Uh, Role offensive where you've got air support, artillery. Um, so th those those, yeah, those operations, those little exercises keep you busy. And and you, by the time you actually deploy, you've run through so many situations that you know. By the end of that four months, I was finally feeling like, okay, <laughs> now I maybe I got this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool. That. Over in Twenty Nine Palms, they actually like you actually like call on you know like airstrikes and stuff like that like as, as part of the training. Absolutely, yeah. The I mean, well, yeah. The the Marines are for sure. Uh, so the way it's set up there is you'll you do a whole oh recon your area. So you you know you go stay out in the desert and you're basically looking. They have these ranges. They call them a range, but it's I mean they're whole like cities made out of contain shipping containers and they're they're rigged up to look like little little towns out in the desert basically and um they've got you know pop-up targets and uh instructors out there you sometimes you're using sim rounds the little paintball tipped mm -hmm. um bullets and you know having yeah paintball wars um but in the shaping yeah you absolutely have it, every part of the unit gets to train their skills during during that month-long training exercise so you know that one you'll spend a whole day just practicing you know your your platoon calling in air calling in artillery strikes or airstrikes and calling in the proper adjustments and coordinates and yeah just practicing all yeah running through all of that so over as, and over again so as the, you, I'm sorry go ahead Oh no! Go ahead. I was gonna say, as the corpsman, like out there, do they let you, you know, like get in on that? Since you know you're gonna be right next to them, you know, in real life, or are you? Do they just kind of make you be like safety coverage during that kind of stuff? Um, no. So for for us, we're we're never we're not on the radios. I mean, if the if the corpsman's on the radio, then 
something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. Um, so we're yeah, the corpsman's not actually calling in um, anything. Although we practice it, you know, mm-hmm. not on the radio, but when you're sitting around in, in between training exercises, your platoon sergeants will be like, "All right, doc, you know, give me a call in a nine line medevac report or or you know what's the oh, I can't even remember what it is now. I think it's a six line artillery report, but um, yeah. So you practice it, but you don't. Yeah, the corpsman is almost never. I'm not gonna say it doesn't happen because I'm sure it does, and it probably you know definitely maybe in the kind of the sniper platoons and force recon platoons you might see uh, corpsmen fulfilling more of those types of roles and those uh, smaller smaller units but no yeah the corpsman in that stage you're usually just you're you're running and gunning with the marines uh, until somebody uh, gets hurt um, and in the training environment so the instructors would be like okay this marine hypothet you know has a gunshot wound to the chest you know this is what you see and so then you mock treat that based on what the instructors are telling you gotcha that you're seeing yeah in your exam and then um, that that training we actually and the, for the corpsman we have one day out there that's actually dedicated to us where we have what they call the kill house and uh, you go in there and they have all these actors and some of them are amputees some of them are are you know were marines or soldiers airmen or sailors that you know lost limbs and they're there as in the training environment simulating a you know an amputee on the battlefield and so you, and and they go they do that like full makeup full moulage kit and that's a really that's that's an incredible training environment and experience because you're running into this situation where you, you know you, you can hear the gunfire and smell the smoke and you go in and you, it's not real blood but it looks pretty real and uh, and uh, so, yeah, so you get fully trained, and, and every aspect of the unit gets trained during those exercises. So the mortarmen get their chance, the machine gunners have their range, the corpsmen have their range, the, yeah. So <clears throat> you get back from 29, you said you are out there for about a month at 29 Palms? Yeah, a month. We were out there for a month just before we deployed. So we deployed in April, and that was probably like February, March time frame. Okay, and then you you come back to Camp Lejeune, right? You don't deploy right from Twenty Nine Palms. Oh yeah, okay. you you come home. You're home for about two weeks to find you know pack up your stuff, and uh, you we usually get about a week of uh, time with the family. Okay. Before we head out, and then yeah, and then you fly out from well Cherry Point, just north of uh, Camp Lejeune. Mm-hmm. So. You know, uh, on the flight over there, because I, I know you make, you make like a few stops. Like normally, it's like Germany you stop at, and then yeah, you know. we flew through Ireland, going to Iraq. My first deployment, we flew yeah from uh, North Carolina to Ireland to Kuwait, and then Kuwait to Iraq. Uh, what what was kind of going through you know your head? flying over like we're I mean were you you're ready after all the training or you know we're um we yeah, just, you, yeah you are you are you definitely think you are um and uh you know I didn't know what to expect the 
our squad leaders, uh, this this was their second or third deployment for most of them. Um, so they were really serious, you know, and all of all of us going on our first deployment, you know, we're back to kind of keeping it light, coking, joking, and yeah, trying not to think about it too much. And I mean, there's at that point, you know, you're either trained or you're not. There's not a lot that that you can do. Um, when you're on your way over there, you're you're either ready to go or you're not, and and so we were mostly just kind of keeping it light and and trying to have a good time. And uh, squad leaders are telling stories about their previous deployments. And guys are talking about you know how many bad guys are gonna kill and yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so. You know, going over it, it's 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 light, it, it's and it's pretty fun, and and mostly it's a good time. Nobody, it's it's not all that serious at that point. They're kind of like, all right, we're we're going to do this. Everybody just relax till we get there, and and then we got there, and that first deployment was really quiet. Uh, the Marines that were there before us had done an outstanding job, and uh, we didn't have we didn't we didn't see a whole lot of action. Uh, my first deployment. Um, this I didn't like see Iraq, I, right? I, I didn't see any. Uh, yeah, I, I, I never even took my weapon. Never even took the safety off my weapon. At nine months, I was in Fallujah in 2008. Wow. So that was right after the because Fallujah was 06, right? Like the big battle of Fallujah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this was um, obviously after the yeah. the armies fell. So now we're fighting the insurgents at this time, also, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know, we were seeing, we were finding a lot of IEDs, um, but for the most part, it wasn't a very kinetic environment. We were patrolling a lot, doing, building a lot of relationships with the local leaders, trying to rebuild some schools and roads and uh, sewer systems. And yeah, we were at that point. We we're kind of just providing security and trying to maintain some sort of order so the locals can. Uh, could rebuild their lives. The Battle of Fallujah really, really destroyed the the town and infrastructure of Fallujah. So, um, yeah, we were basically there on on cleanup duty, or providing security for the cleanup. So you said it was, um, it was pretty. You know, no big events or anything crazy happened really on that first deployment. Uh, oh well, not for the most part. We did. We had some casualties. Um, uh, we did have a, one. A marine was killed, Daniel McGuire, um, and that was a, that was a really hard day for all of us, uh, losing losing him on that deployment. And um, did that change your mindset at all? Did that make it? I mean, obviously, it, it was it was already real for you. I mean, you, you know, you're, yeah, you're, you know, you're, I mean, you're there. I, I, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't there for it. That was a squad at a different location from where I was at. Okay. Um, and I was out on patrol when it happened. Um, so you know, for for me, you know, yeah, I wasn't there. It, it was really just something I heard about. Um, but regardless, but, uh, obviously, it's still, you know, but, I mean, it's it's still hard, sucked. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's devastating losing a Marine. Um, and, uh, and, of course, and it was confusing, too, because we, we just we had seen so little action, you know, and so it was kind of hard for, like, people like, what? What do you mean McGuire was killed? Like, well, there hasn't been a shot fired in months. What, what are you talking about? Like, 
you know, how, how, why. So, um, yeah, and that was just kind of an isolated incident. There wasn't, um, for, yeah, for most of the, most of the Marines in the company, there was, that wasn't a ter- uh, very kinetic environment. So pretty much at that point, the city was pretty much under control by, you know, by us, by the good guys. So is, is that, and all the insurgency was pretty yeah. much pushed out? Yeah, well, for the most part, we were, st- I mean, we were still finding a lot of IEDs. The, pre- the, the presence of the insurgency is, you know, definitely still there. And I'm, I think it'll always will be. I don't think we've ever fully pushed, pushed all of the insurgents out of anywhere over there. <laughs> I mean, and, and Fallujah is a, I mean, you know, everyone, most people think, you know, Iraq is just a big desert with some huts, but, you know, Fallujah is essentially, you know, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big it's city. city. Yeah, it's a large city. It's the size of, uh, yeah, a, a fairly large U.S. city. Um, it sits on a, on a river and it's got, you know, dams and bridges and, um, yeah. Big marketplaces, uh, no skyscrapers, but <laughs> but it's it, it is it's a big city. I I don't know what the population is, but I'm you know I I'm sure it's around a quarter million. So what was coming home uh, like that or from that that deployment? Um, you know it, it it was good to be home. It was a lot that that deployment seemed like it went by so slow. Um. Just because it was so routine and mostly monotonous, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, coming home, it, it was kind of like oh, it almost felt like you know the war was kind of was was over, you know. Um, but obviously, it isn't, or it wasn't, and it isn't. But uh, yeah, so coming home, I was like, okay, you know, that's that. Now it's time to get ready for the next one. Um, whenever, wherever that may be, and so uh, yeah, we just settled back into the typical training routine, uh, run, going to you know, different bases, doing different types of training, a lot of helicopter uh, base training, um, and you know during that time there, the so the war was winding down in Iraq, and we were supposed to go back to Iraq. And, the next fall, in the fall of 2009, um, and but that deployment ended up getting canceled. And uh, see, I ended up going. I went to on a on a deployment actually with another unit for about three months. Um, when our deployment got canceled, uh, our chief came by asking for volunteers to go to Afghanistan to a unit that was in the fight and had. Needed corpsmen. All of their corpsmen were were had been injured um, or wounded, and uh, so yeah, it's, we'd been sitting around training for uh, six months, but six or seven months by then, I was like, oh yeah, I was the first one to raise my hand. I was like, get me out, <laughs> get me out of here, send me. I need, I need some action. Send me, send me over, and uh, so I went to uh, Helmand, Afghanistan, actually, uh, just south of Marja. Where I would end up going with Third uh, Battalion, Six Marines, Six Marines the following year, and where I ended up getting blown up. But went out there to a amphibious assault uh, unit, the AA Amtrackers we call them. They drive the amphibious assault vehicles, the tracked ones. Okay. 
and uh, they were doing some route clearance out just south of Marja, and uh, they, yeah, they'd seen quite a bit of um, activity, and that was just before Operation Mushtarak, which is a you know a huge helicopter-borne assault into Marja. So this was all of all of the shaping was going on, and so we were helping to bring a lot of um, Marine recon and some Army Navy Special Forces in and out of uh, the Mars area while they're collecting collecting data and intelligence uh, for us to go in a few months later. Um, so I was there back in Afghanistan um, September of 2009 until early December 2009. And then home for like a month, and then back, straight back in January of 2010. So, <clears throat> um, was re did you have to re-enlist in between any of this? Or were no. You, no? Oh. No, when I, I came in on a six-year contract. Oh, uh, okay, because of the SEAL thing? Or yeah, not? well, yeah. no, because um, no, I had lost that. But I had, so I, I had gone back to college a couple times um, on and off when I was ski bumming it. So I had, I had like 50 or 60 credit hours of college by the time I actually finally enlisted. Uh, so I came in, because of my education, I came in as an E3. And because I pre-said, you know, yeah, I'll go corm, FMF corpsman, I'll go greenside corpsman. Um, they needed, yeah, that, that uh, specialty and the corpsman rate, they really needed to fill. So I got a Came in as an E3 and got a sign-on bonus if I did six years. Oh, okay. Yeah, now you, now you have so. to pay to stay in as a corpsman. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to get up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's kind of get into this. The um, So, well, well, how was that short little the three-month stint? Did you... Um, I know you saw, obviously, they must have seen a lot of action since they needed corpsman. Did, while you were there... Did you get in any kind of firefights or anything like that? Uh, just a couple small firefights. We saw, sat on a lot of IEDs. Most of the, the casualties that they had were, um, they were hitting IEDs. So they were doing route clearance and route security uh, between Southern Marja and then this patrol base that was maybe 40 or 50 kilometers to the south. And so we were just clearing that desert. And so it was... Um, and it was kind of wrapping up by the time I got there. When it was starting to get to the cold months of winter, and that's that's when things quiet down. They'd been there all summer, um, which is when most of the fighting happens. So I got there kind of at the tail end. Um, two small firefights while I was there with them. Well, not even firefights. We took some small arms fire, returned a little bit of fire, and then yeah, chased these two guys down on a motorcycle and detained them without any real incident, but, um, yeah, so, yeah, again, I, yeah, I didn't really see a lot there, there either, and then, um, even in my following deployment, I got slated as the, uh, senior line corpsman, and so I was in the, the company, um, at the company fob a lot, and in the vehicles a lot, so a lot of my duties there were, kind of administrative and and then taking care of minor minor minorly wounded casualties um, mostly concussions guys that have got got a, a minor concussion from an IED blast or or fall or something 
and just needed to be monitored uh, at the company aid station. So, so the, this this is going into your your second full deployment that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Okay. Sec, second deployment. So now you're actually in in Marja, right? I'm not one of these combat hardened corpsmen <laughs> who's been in every firefight and <laughs> done a bunch of of heroicness. Um, yeah, that my deployments didn't work out that way for me. I was a lot of times um, usually in a pretty safe safe spot, and uh, during my second deployment, I definitely fired my weapon a few times. But it was uh, for me, it wasn't wasn't yeah. I wasn't out fighting with the platoons. All right, so let's kind of um I don't I don't want to use the word your big day, but you know the 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 day that, you know, your your injury happened. Um you know what what was that day like kind of yeah, you know, so before? That was uh July 22nd, it's the very end of our deployment. We'd been there for uh almost 8 months. And we were just in. The, I mean, we were ripping out. It was so so far into the. I mean, I'm talking the tail end of our deployment. We were going home in four days, and um, a senior, some of the leadership from the unit that was going to be taking over for us had arrived, and we were basically just showing them around the AO and uh, kind of doing like a turnover with them. Exactly, doing a turnover, a rip. We were ripping out. Okay. Yeah. We've been out, so we were in the. We had the trucks, the mobile platoon, out of uh, the headquarters. Uh, headquarters platoon, third battalion, six Marines, India Company, and we were showing uh, these guys around from I think two nine was relieving us, but uh, yeah, we we'd been out all day. Hitting, all, taking them to all the different positions, and it had been pretty active. Those few, those, I mean, that whole deployment was super active. There was a, I think, every day we had one of the platoons, or at least a squad in a firefight or a tick of some sort. I think almost every day of that deployment. Wow. But uh, so we were running around a lot that day, doing a lot of resupply, um, and just, you know. All the, there's a lot that needs to happen as as you're doing that turnover, and uh, we were headed to our last position of the day before we were going to return to the company fob. And uh, as we turned down this road, pretty main road, some uh, farmers uh, came out and and flagged us down and said that the Taliban had put a IED in the road up ahead a couple hundred meters, and uh, so we got out. To, to look for that and you know the the Taliban or they'll tell you that sometimes just to get you out of the trucks you know we take it we take all of that information with a grain of salt you know there may not there may in the you know in the back of our minds we're thinking okay there may not even be an IED in the road maybe they just want to get us out of the trucks there's this big open field on both sides of us of this road that we were driving down so it's just a really wide open area really sketchy area uh, of town and kind of northern, northeastern Marja. And, uh, yeah, so we got out of the trucks and we're sweeping down this road and don't see anybody around, don't see any sign of the ID. And 
at this point we're probably like maybe a hundred meters from the fire base that we're that we were that we were headed to and so we decided to get back in the trucks the the convoy commander and I and the other senior Marines you know like yes decided to call it we got back in the trucks and headed just a little further down the road in fact I think probably the very first vehicle may have been parked right on top of the IED which is probably why we didn't see it maybe uh, I, I don't know who knows but it was really well hidden in this little blind spot. There was one building along this road and some shrubs kind of sticking out. And then there was this irrigation ditch running back to this tree line. And, yeah, it was just this perfect little ambush point. And we got back in the trucks and first vehicle rolled on. No nothing. And then right as we were coming up to it, I could see this spot where I could see where somebody had been digging. And um, at that point, you know, we're on top of it. So... I didn't even say anything to the driver. You want to just keep rolling smooth and steady because it's probably not a pressure plate. You know, it's probably command detonated, so there's somebody watching. You got a spotter somewhere. Gotcha. Is what I figure. So I'm reaching for my radio to tell the vehicle behind me to stop. And uh, right then, probably right as I was reaching for my mic, kind of looking over my right shoulder, boom, man, I could see the see the ground come up at us it, it it seems like that's how it is in my memory anyways Jesus. Yeah, yeah it went off uh, right under us right under our truck huge blast and uh, I mean it sent us up it was like being in a it's like being on one of those amusement park rides that shoots you straight up in the air mm-hmm. <laughs> like that ball on the on the bungee cord <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and uh, and I don't think I ever lost consciousness. I mean, there was that, that bang, and then, you know, ears are ringing, and the truck, we, we went up, felt like we went up a mile, but uh, I'm sure it was only maybe a few feet, 10. I think the guys in the truck behind us said it looked like we went up maybe 10 feet, 5, 10 feet. Jesus. Like, we'll and you're in, like, this uh, huge armored, you know, you're not in, like, a little, you're in, like, a little pickup. Uh, and, and, <laughs> Yeah, the the new the big combat vehicles is what they're replacing all the Humvees with. Yeah. So we're six wheeled MRAP, yeah. and that's that. I think those things weigh close to forty thousand pounds. Yeah. So I mean, they're 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 practically like a tank. So that was a big but, blast to send that thing up. Then. Yeah, yeah, huge. Uh, I think post blast analysis said something between hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty pounds of of high explosive. Which is that's big. So you said that you you know you don't think you lost consciousness. Did you know at that moment that you saw you know like the the earth begin to come up? Uh, did you know a lot of people will kind of describe like a slow mo effect almost? Like did you? Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. It, looking back, I mean, I know it was a split second, you know, but for me, like that first second seems like five minutes. I mean, I could, I I did it. I. I have my uh, radio on my right shoulder, and uh, so I'm looking out the window. I'm sitting in the front right seat, and as I'm looking looking to the right to talk into the mic, I'm looking right out the window, and I can see this see this spot where they've been digging it. And it just yeah, it was like it leapt, like jumped up at my face, you know. And 
and yeah, and we went up right with it. The ground came up, and I could feel my seat lift me for a second. And uh, yeah, we felt like we were airborne there for a minute, and then kind of came crashing back down into this crater underneath us. And everybody in the truck was unconscious. Uh, I was yelling out to my driver, Dell. We had Tynes in the back, and uh, another corpsman, actually Rico, is in the in, in the very back of the truck. And I'm yelling back. I'm like, "Hey, you guys, you guys okay? You guys okay?" And I didn't hear anything. And uh, the radio's crackling, and the, uh, the Marines are calling up, "Hey, Vic, two, Doc, you guys okay? What's going on in there?" And uh, could hear we're taking some small arms fire. And uh, so there was a little, yeah, so they, after they blew us up, there's a small ambush from this tree line uh, a couple hundred yards to our right, I guess, to the east. We were headed south. And, uh, yeah, took some fire so you can hear some plinking on the armored truck a little bit. And then the uh, that that quieted down pretty quick. You could hear the the other vehicles returning fire, and we're pretty close to this fire base. Um, and so I could hear a lot of activity on the radio, and I knew that, knew the Marines were coming. So I just kind of started to look around the truck and uh, see what was going on uh, with the guys. None of them were responding. Uh, Dell, our driver, he's kind of the blast knocked him out of his seat and kind of over. He was kind of leaned up against me, and so I, I grabbed him and kind of checked his, checked his pulse and put my face up to his face to see if he was breathing, and he was. And uh, so I tried to then I tried to open my door, and the doors were wedged shut. and couldn't get the doors open, and that's when I tried to push with my feet and push us out of the front seats and back onto the turret stand. There's like there's a little crawl space between the two front seats going back into the back of the truck and that's where the turret gunner stands. Okay. And uh tried to push us back there and when I pushed, that's when I knew I was messed up. Because I pushed with my feet and there was like I was pushing against nothing. It was like just mushy. You know, the truck's really tight, and it was filled with dust. I couldn't really see. I couldn't see my legs. I couldn't see if I was bleeding or or what. And uh, did you feel any pain so, or anything at this point? Oh, not, no, not yet. At that point, not feeling any pain. So I just kind of kept pushing, and that wasn't working. So I grabbed Dell by his flak jacket, and kind of shoved him, slid him over my shoulder back onto the turret stand and then you know with my elbows kind of crawl I crawled my worked my way back onto the turret stand and uh, got our gunner and the other corpsman I could see them still laying back there but I didn't see any blood well Tynes was bleeding from his face a little bit but it I don't know they didn't look dead <laughs> and so that so I was actually pretty relieved right in that moment and and it and Really soon after that, the, I could hear the Marines climbing up on the truck, and can't remember who it was. I think, I think, I think Campa, maybe it was, stuck his head in through the turret, and uh, it's like, "Hey, you guys okay?" And I was like, "No, man, we are fucked up. Get us out of here." <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, um, so when you crawled back, you know, you said you kind of wiggled, wiggled, uh, wiggled your way um, through through that those seats into kind of where the turret was. Uh, at, at that moment, could you kind of see your um, see your legs, or were you still kind of there's just so much dust and stuff like that? You just still weren't really you know noticing. No, I I could see him as as I was dragging my legs up over the seat. I could see um flopping and folding in ways that they shouldn't. It looked like I had three knees between my knee and my ankle. I mean, they just they were like noodles, you know. As I dragged them over the edge of the seat, I could just see them flopped over, you know, like mid shin, just mm-hmm. dangling. And uh, yeah, they were just mush, like pulverized. So did the the IED hit you uh, on on your side? Is uh, it, uh, yeah, it was right under my seat, okay. basically. Um, so the brunt of the blast uh, was right in my feet area. And uh, so it shattered my feet. Um, well, it kind of looked like they'd been through like a paper shredder or, or something. And kind of just oozing blood. Not not real fast. Just kind of pretty slow. Actually, there there wasn't a lot of blood coming out of them. I think because they were just so pulverized that the tissue immediately would just swelled up and kind of almost tourniqueted things off. But. Um, there was just no structure to them, though, from, like, my knees down. They were just wet noodles. Um, yeah, so I, and as the Marines were dragging me out of the truck, I mean, they were just, yeah, they were flopping all over. And we got me out and started treating the other Marines, trying to get everybody woken up. Guys were wake. the other three were starting to wake up and seemed to be all right. And... Um, I was talking one of the Marines through splinting my legs up, getting my, you know, tying my legs together, and so you're actually walking them through how to treat you, talking them, talking. <laughs> them. Well, well, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just with you. yeah, yeah. It's kind of yeah. They were like, Doc, Doc, what are you? What do we need to do? I was like, Man, just tie my feet together so they're not flopping all over the place. Splint me up a little bit. I had some Sam splints in my backpack, so I had him put a couple Sam splints under my under my feet, going up, coming up the sides, and and then used a I don't know dozen, half dozen uh, triangle bandages to to just kind of splint my legs together uh, while we moved me. So we had a truck, so they got me on a stretcher, um, so they were able to lash me down to that, which which. Gave pretty good support, and Did they, and then once we established that none, nobody else needed any morphine, I went ahead and administered myself a couple auto injectors. <laughs> <laughs> Just take some of this. Yeah, yeah. I'll take one, one for the right leg, one for the left leg. Did they have somebody to give me somebody? Give me a cigarette. And get me the. Out of here. <laughs> did, um, did they have to apply any kind of tourniquets or anything, or no? Because you, you know, you said the bleeding wasn't too. So yeah, weren't it wasn't. Um, yeah, I wasn't bleeding a lot. Okay. There, it was was there was there was some blood, but it wasn't it wasn't a bloody mess. I wasn't bleeding to that to death, so we didn't tourniquet me up. At least I don't think we put tourniquets on me. <clears throat> so you know, you're you're on the stretcher now. You know, bandaged up as, as much as you know you possibly could be. <clears throat> what was yeah. um, 
Was it still like yeah, sur- so, surreal at that moment or? Uh, yeah, totally. You know, I was a little bit bewildered and, um, mostly I was really disappointed. So I had just, so you asked me earlier if I had reenlisted yet or not. And I, and I hadn't, but I had, I was at that point where I needed to. So I was at my five year mark and, uh, I needed, I needed to put in for orders. And so I had just put in my package to reenlist and, um, and hope and go to buds hopefully <laughs> so I, yeah so i'm thinking to myself i was like man i am never gonna go to buds <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's actually what i was thinking to myself i was like yeah that's that's that you know i'm looking at my feet and i i, I mean i knew that there was no way that that uh, they're gonna be able to patch them back together not well enough for me to run around um, like I like I had been. So yeah, that was kind of my thought. Was, oh well, there goes that. So much for all that reenlistment package. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did you? F- you know, um, I'm assuming you know they they got you back to the to the base and and kind of got you out of there as soon as possible, or or did you kind of? Yeah, there's this building right there along the side of the road that we ducked into. Uh, they took me in there and uh, the other three Marines that were in the vehicle, the other three casualties, and uh, they called in called in the medevac, and uh, and it was and it was pretty quiet. Nothing nothing was really going on. It was, it was yeah, it was surreal. It was kind of a, a surreal kind of tranquil moment where I was just kind of sitting around like, oh man, that you know that sucks. Almost made it home scot free from you know this one. And so, yeah, we were just waiting for the helicopter, and then the and it, and so the medevac came, and that was all pretty eventless. They loaded us up and and flew us out, and then uh, I guess right after that, uh, the guys who had attacked us kind of regrouped and and uh, ambushed uh, the Marines that were out that same convoy and so they actually just after we got out of there had a pretty big firefight with with uh yeah whoever had attacked us so yeah we got really lucky we you know got out got it was a smooth medevac and and uh, I think some of those guys are still in the corpsman Rico he's still in um I think the other two are out out now, but but alive and well, and some of us talk every now and again. Uh, so did they? Uh, how how soon after that did you kind of leave Afghanistan? Uh, within a few days. So I mean, I was really heavily met. So I, right off the battlefield, they put me to a uh, forward surgical tent at. Uh, Oh, Camp Leatherneck, I think, or maybe Bastion, but right there in Helmand, the forward operating base in Helmand, and uh, they have field surgeons there, and they did the, they started doing, uh, started working on me right away. So got some, yeah, put the what they call X fixes, uh, external fixations. They put all these rods, and there's like this metal frame they put around your leg, and then they screw these rods into the bone in, in your leg and, and kind of twist and pull everything back into 
um, the shape that it's supposed to be in, and so they're, they're trying to save my legs, and which they did. They were able to save my feet and uh, bolt me back together. But so I had first surgery there, and then I think they flew me to uh, Bagram, and I was there for a couple hours, and then um, I don't really remember much of that until I woke up uh, at a hospital in Germany and uh, launched little Germany and that's that was that's my first real kind of coherent lucid moment after the medevac one um were did were your was your family already like notified about what happened or, or were you the one that no, they no, they weren't, and uh, no, yeah, and it all it all happened. So yeah, I got I was in Germany. I think probably eighteen hours or so after the actual uh, IED blast. Mm -hmm. So pretty quick, you know. Um, so that nobody had contacted my family yet. Uh, the only number I had memorized was my grandparents' phone number, um, and I wasn't even sure actually if my parents were still in Saudi Arabia or if they're in the states visiting or not. I wasn't even exactly sure where they were, but uh, yeah. So I called my grandparents. Um, it was the first first people I called, and uh, and just said, "Hey, you know, I'm coming home a few days early." Uh, I didn't tell them that that anything had happened. I just said that uh, if they could uh, track my mom down, call my mom and have her call me. The nurses gave me a number uh, to give. So people could call me while I was there in law school. And so I, yeah, I just gave my grandparents my mom's number and, and said, "Have her call me." And and uh, yeah, and they did. And my, I think my mom called within an hour or so. And yeah, I told her basically what had happened. I didn't tell her how bad, how badly hurt I was. I just, you know, I told her I got blown up. I was coming home a few days early, and that uh, the doctors were saying I would be in Bethesda in 24 hours. And that they should start making their way there, and uh, yeah, and, and and it was quick. I wasn't in launch stool for long. Really, I I can't even remember how long I was there, but it wasn't very long. They had me on a flight back to the states in in no time. So. so at this point, you said that they were kind of able to to save like your your legs and your feet. At this point, was the general consensus like you you know you were you were going to keep them or? Well, no, I didn't. We didn't know anything yet. You know, they they were they they were just saying, you know, wait till you get to Bethesda, and uh, you'll talk to the doctors there, and and, and we'll see see what's going to happen. They're like, you know, but they were telling me, you know, that that my legs were in really bad shape, and I mean, you could see it. So I had a fasciotomy on my right leg, which is where they slice the skin mm -hmm. um, to allow the leg to swell. Otherwise, the skin will act like a tourniquet. My leg was so badly, the, my tibia and fibula were so badly shattered. I mean, my, my, especially my right leg was swollen, like I mean, it was the size of an like an elephant foot. It was, it was massive, and you could see his huge, huge gaping wounds down the two sides. You could look right into the tissue. I mean, it was, yeah, they looked. My feet looked dead. So I knew that there was probably there was a good chance I was going to lose my legs. That was pretty obvious. Now, did you feel any kind of, um, you know, kind of now that it's kind of after the fact, and you know, you're 
you're out of the war zone and kind of in like a more controlled environment where, you know, I'm assuming you can think a little bit more clearly. Um, was there any, any kind of bit of, you know, anger or, or like what was kind of your emotions at, at this time? Or were you just so, so dragged up? Never really been. I mean, of course I, you know, I get angry about not having my feet, but I never, I've never felt like angry about the way that it happened or, you know, anything we were doing, we did everything. We were doing the best we could. We were doing everything. We did everything right. We just, you know, we just missed the one. I don't know that there's much we, and I don't know that there's much we could have done about it. Um, it was, that was a really well-placed IED and that was just the circumstances. So, I mean, yeah, I get frustrated sometimes about being hurt, you know, but that only that doesn't get me anywhere except yeah yeah so i don't i don't spend i try not to spend too much time having the pity party although i definitely have my moments <laughs> but um but yeah and then right when i got back the doctors were like i get that my probably my only wonder get is that i didn't amputate my feet sooner so when i when i First morning back in Bethesda, the doctors come to do their assessment and talk to me, and they and they immediately suggested amputation. And um, my we talked about it as a family and talked to some other doctors and decided that you know we should at least try limb salvage, try to save them, you know. And and so I did that for like four years, and and and, that, and it was okay. I I had some great successes during that time. I, you know, I made it to the the Paralympics in Sochi and snowboarding um, on those busted up old feet, and so it wasn't it, it wasn't it wasn't the worst decision. But looking back on it, um, now that I have had my feet amputated for about three years now, uh, I wish I would have done the amputation a little bit sooner. <laughs> Did you still need like um, walking assistance and stuff like that? Uh, or mm-hmm. when I see- needed uh, I needed some braces that I wore. Uh, so without the braces, I needed a cane really to walk, and probably you know I couldn't really walk much more than maybe a, a few city blocks, quarter mile at the most. Uh, and then I got these carbon fiber exoskeleton kind of braces that wrapped all the way around the bottom of my foot and then ran up went up the back of my legs up to my knee and um, with those I was doing really well so with those I could snowboard I could even run a little bit jump a little bit and uh, the braces were they were pretty solid Um, without those I definitely would have amputated had the amputation of my feet done a lot sooner Um, so yeah those brace with those carbon braces that that's kinda what gave me that four years Four years with those feet of, of really pretty good activity. Pretty, was there was there a lot of like surgeries and stuff throughout those four years that you kind of constantly had to go do, or, or was it just more of like um, physical therapy type stuff? Just physical therapy type stuff. My yeah, I, I had probably a half dozen surgeries within the first six months, and then that but then that was it. You know, it, it, no surgery after that. Um. So how how did this uh, I've always been kind of curious, um, but I've never really had the opportunity to ask. How does like in a situation that you know you were in, being being wounded, and, and obviously you know um, not being able to go back to active active duty? How does that work with the military? Like like when is it 
to the point to where like they medically retire you like like how long after that are you active if if you don't want me asking that question i'm yeah well it's uh yeah i don't mind and it varies um a lot case by case and um it's, it's somewhat up to the service member um you know i guess in a sense i mean well, I don't know. I, I think I probably could have fought really hard to stay in, and maybe, maybe even stayed in. I would never have gone back to a. I, I probably wouldn't have made it into a deployable status, which ultimately would have not let me promote. So I would have, I wouldn't have been able to stay in for very long. But I probably could have stayed in for maybe one more enlistment. But I would have spent most of that time in physical therapy. And I wouldn't have been any use to the Navy, um, so uh, because and because I was as the service connected, um, yeah, because I was wounded. Uh, they took really care of me. You know, uh, the retirement's not bad, and so that's what I that's what I went with. Okay, yeah, I've always just been kind of you know curious, like like kick you out, well, not kick you out right away, but you know, kind of say, all right, you know, we're gonna retire you right away, and. No, so they, you know, they, I mean, first they ask you, you know, do you want to stay in or do you want, do you want to get out? You know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you have a, an injury that, so it's pretty obvious that you're not going to, you're going to have to have waivers for your PFT and, you know, waivers so that you can modify your uniform to, you know, fit, fit the braces on your feet. Or, or whatever you know they'll they will make those concessions for you um, if you really if if you if you really want to stay in you have to be really highly motivated to st- to, to want to stay in though um, and I don't know I have mixed feelings about it I think if that's something you want to do you should but uh, for for me you know my the military service is, is all about being ready to do any job at any time ultimately and for me, I you know I couldn't do that anymore, and so gotcha. it, for, for me it was it was time to go out. And I will, my my desire, yeah, what I wanted to do in the military was was be with the be with a war fighting unit, and uh, I wasn't going to be able to do that on on those busted up feet, and even now with with two prosthetic legs, I still. You know, I have days where I can't put my legs on, and and that's just that doesn't work with with the commitment that you make to the military. So for me, I I felt almost obligated to 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 hang it up and and retire out. So how long were you at Bethesda? Were you there for like a long time? No, just uh. Like six months. Let's see. I I got transferred out to uh, Balboa to the Naval Hospital in San Diego uh, in December of 2010. So yeah, six months after after I got blown up, okay. and uh, so I wrapped up my naval my time in the Navy out there, uh, and so and I was there till May. Let's see. I got out May of 2012. So I was there for a year, year and a half almost. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, yeah. so it takes a while. The 
Yeah, after you get blown up, you have several assessment boards, you know, that you know, assess, are you, can, can you run now? What's the likelihood that you'll be able to return to a full active duty status and in what time frame? And based on those recommendations, they kind of say, okay, you know, we recommend that you, you know, retire out either temporarily or permanently. And at first I was on a temporary retired list temporary disability because, you know, there was the chance that we were, you know, we were doing this limb salvage and we're thinking, oh, yeah, maybe a few few more years of rehab and whatnot and maybe I'll be back to 100%, but that never transpired. So, uh, they, you know, so they transferred me to the permanent permanent disability retired list and, and then now with the amputation, that's where, you know, I'll stay on that list. And so... They take good care of me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I retired with, with pretty, with a solid uh, uh, disability pension. Um, yeah. So you know, not uh, your military story you know, again is very, um, you know, I, I don't know if you look at yourself as a hero, but you know, I, I do, um, and and it's definitely in, inspirational to to fight through all the challenges that you went through. But, you know, even after succeeding through all of that, you know, you, you decide to kind of um, pick up this snowboarding thing, you know, uh, again and, and kind of pursue that. When did, when did that kind of come about to, to kind of, you know, um, I mean, you said you've always had a passion for snowboarding, but kind of, you know, how much longer or how long or how long after you, you know, left the hospital and, and kind of got uh, your life back to normal, you know, as much as you could, did you kind of decide to pursue that? that uh, uh, dream, I guess, is, is a good way to say it. Yeah, definitely. Good question. Uh, so pretty much right when I got out. Well, actually, and even that first winter, the winter of 2011-2012, uh, uh, before I got out, um, I was doing a lot of sports with the uh, Navy Safe Harbor and the Wounded, uh, Wounded Warrior Games. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but mm-hmm, definitely. Where, so, yeah, so it's like a little, like a kind of Paralympic style event uh, for the different branches, and the those are mostly guys and girls that are going through that um, process of either staying in or getting out, recovering from their injuries. Um, started competing in this, and so that's kind of what got me, kept me going through the rehab and got me back on my feet and I was like okay you know I can do a lot with these braces and um, I knew that staying active was something that I I was gonna have to do if I was gonna live a a rewarding life style uh, with having injuries like this at a a young age you know I was in my late 20s then I, I just turned 30 yeah so I'm like 31 then and uh, so when I got out that next winter, I you know was kind of not sure what to do with myself. You know, I've, I'm out of the Navy now, and I moved back to Utah. Um, my parents had a house there, so that's kind of naturally where I went. Um, my my mom and dad had come back from. No, they actually they still were in Saudi Arabia. They didn't come back till 2015, but. Anyways, I was living in their house, and then winter rolled around, and uh, and I uh, was like, all right, I'm going to try to snowboard. And so I, I had to modify my bindings a little bit and actually got myself back out on the 
on the mountain and uh, went up to Snowbird and uh, it took all day to make all the adjustments and get things modified. I needed some pretty big modification and it's kind of hard to explain but my ankles were fused. I didn't have any motion so I kind of had to block up my heels in order so that I could bend my knees so I could snowboard and it took all day to rig up these blocks and the bindings but I finally got it and and honestly snowboarding it was it was like almost I did, couldn't even tell that my feet were messed up um, you know snowboarding boots are typically pretty stiff and give you a lot of support so you don't have a whole lot of ankle motion um, when you're snowboarding it's reduced anyways and and uh, yeah, it actually ended up feeling pretty natural, um, and and so that just I was like, wow, you know, man, if I can if I can do this, then then uh, then I could, God, if I could snowboard, I could definitely live with with these injuries. Um, and then it also helped, you know, I'd seen some other amputees, I'd, I'd seen some double amputees snowboarding, mainly this girl Amy Purdy. Um, she had a YouTube video of her snowboarding and. And then my recovery, you know, I was like, all right, you know, that's what I'm going to try to get back to, you know. So when I got out and I had the time, that first winter, I got back on my board, and and uh, it it was a pretty smooth transition, and um, I didn't know what to do with it, and I had all this time on my hands. I needed to do something, so I contacted the National Ability Center, um, which is a, a sports center for the disabled in Park City, Utah and told them that I wanted to volunteer uh, and start teaching snowboarding again. You know, I figured, okay, if I can overcome this disability and ride, you know, maybe it'll be rewarding to help teach that, share that with people. And so I called them because they that's what they do. And uh, they ended up having all of their volunteer, they didn't, yeah, their volunteer staff was pretty full for the season. But they had this snowboard race program. I didn't even know that disabled athletes were racing snowboards. Um, but they directed me to the their competition program manager, and um, she introduced me to the coaches, and they called me up, and I think within like two weeks there was a race coming up. And they were like, hey, you want to go to this race? And it was out in uh, Lake Tahoe in California. And uh, right on the you know, Nevada... California border, and uh, yeah, I went out, and that was my first snowboard race. I didn't even really know what I was getting into, and um, man, and then, then after that, it was like, okay, this is, I guess this is what I'm doing, and it was almost, you know, just kind of something I, that I just lucked into, really. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that it was, that that specifically was out there. I just knew that I wanted to snowboard, and I wanted to, to, to do something active and, and and I wanted to be part of a group again you know having mm -hmm. that camaraderie that I enjoyed when I was in the military I think I was trying to duplicate that a little bit and so I found out with these these snowboarders that were missing limbs and they were out shredding the mountain I was like oh man this is great and <laughs> and so now I've been racing now for like yeah since I got out six years so has it kind of turned into a um, uh, like a full time thing for you, where like you're kind of training, you know, year round or most of the year, or is it 
because I know like you like you competed in the uh, did you compete in these last Olympics or, or just or associate? Yeah, so, so I I, uh, I didn't I, I I'm I was on the U.S. national team this last winter, uh, but I didn't qualify. I didn't make the cut for the Paralympic team. Okay. Um, I, ba- I just barely missed it. I had a good season, um, but. Man, the the U.S. team is is really kind of dominating the Paralympic snowboarding sport right now, um, in a lot of the classes. And uh, the U.S. was allocated three seats to go, and like the, I think I was sitting maybe fourth or fifth overall in the world. But one, the first, second, and third place guys are also American. <laughs> so. So I yeah I just barely missed out on it, which was, has been a pretty big disappointment. It's it's that was like yeah that was a huge disappointment actually. I've I've been a little bit feeling a little bit sorry for myself these past few months, but um, I'm gonna get back after it. We four more four years four more years. <laughs> but you you okay. competed in Sochi, right? That that's the it was the one before last. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so four years, the last winter, winter Paralympics, uh, Sochi, Russia, in 2014. Do they run alongside the regular Olympics? Like, is it does, do they go on at the same time? No, right after. Oh, okay. uh, it's the same place, but it's uh, usually about a week, about a week after. Um, yeah, the Paralympic opening ceremonies is about a week after the Olympic closing ceremonies. Okay, so what was the? Um... How long from when you kind of, you know, that first race that you did when you're like, hey, like, you know, this this is what I'm going to do now to the Olympics. Like how long of a big um, or how long of a time gap was that? Oh, not long. Just uh, two years. And in fact, snowboarding wasn't even on the ticket for the Sochi Games when I first started racing in 2012. And there was there's only maybe 30 or 40 riders in the whole world that were competing. Um and that group of riders is what really uh, got our sport into the Paralympics. Um, the right when I just I I really kind of got lucky. I joined at a crucial time um, when our sport was um, starting to pick up some notoriety and, and get some attention and make it into some bigger uh, venues like the Paralympics. And uh, so I did pretty well that first season, and then the next year they established the first uh, national team, and uh, I got nominated to it. And then, um, yeah, just two years later. So that first winter was 2012-13, and then, the, yeah, the following winter uh, we went to the games. They made the announcement, I think, like maybe November December. We didn't even know we were going until... Uh, just a couple months before the games, maybe four or five months before the games. Uh, I'm assuming like Salt Lake City has a pretty big snowboarding scene. Um, but did you do any kind of training like out in Boulder or anything like that in Colorado? Uh, no, not in Boulder. I've been out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs a couple times. Okay. Uh, and then I there's a lot of races and training opportunity out in. Uh, the Summit County area of Denver, so like Breckenridge, Frisco area, Copper Mountain. There's a great organization actually out in uh, Copper Mountain called Adaptive Action Sports, and they've got a, a big military program. They've got a bunch of veterans 
uh, on their team out there training, uh, trying to make it to the Paralympics one of these days. So when um, you when you say snowboard racing, are you doing like the uh, the the slalom like with the flags down the hill? No. So we we race. Well, we have an event that's like that. We 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 have two events. We have snowboard cross and bank slalom. And bank slalom is just what it sounds like. It's a slalom course, uh, but the turns have are banked turns like you would find like in a like a motocross track kind of. Okay. And that course, you know, you just turn left, turn right around the gates, um, and there's no jumps or features or anything. Uh, but in border cross, border cross is kind of like motocross. So you've got roller sections, jumps, um, kind of trick features uh, in the course, obstacles basically that that you've got to get over. Um, and that's the one that the, you compete in. I compete in both bank slalom and oh, snowboard okay. cross. Okay, I'm not very good at bank slalom. <laughs> so the uh, the the reason I was asking is um, I have a, a really really good friend of mine who's he's he's essentially my little brother, um, and he uh, he just competed uh, in the the slalom at these past Winter Olympics. Uh, AJ Muss, and he spent a lot he spent a lot of time out there in, in Colorado and stuff like that. I, I was just curious if maybe he might have. And he also spent a lot of time at that Olympic, um, the training center in Colorado. The training center out there, right? Yeah. So I was, I was kind of curious if you ever maybe you know might have heard his name or anything. I haven't met him. I have definitely heard of him uh, and, and watched them compete in the games, um, but I haven't met him. And we, yeah, we don't do a lot of training side by side with the uh, with the Olympic team. Um, Although some former Olympic team members have been our coaches, so Graham Watanabe was our head coach last year, and he's a former uh, two-time Olympic, two-time Olympian border cross racer. Okay. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't really work all that closely with the U.S. team. We're on pretty different programs. Gotcha. So, <clears throat> um, so what's kind of uh, you know life life for you now? Um, you know. You, Obviously, you said you, you want to get back at the snowboarding thing. Um, so, is that pretty much what is, is what consumes your 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 life nowadays? Yes, I'm, I'm training. Um, I just got uh, nominated to the U.S. team uh, for next season. So, I'm still kind of debating whether I'm gonna if I'm gonna race full time next year. Um, I just had my fiance and I are getting married this fall, and we had a daughter uh, almost a year ago. And so, we've got a one year old running around and. I've been on the road traveling and racing a lot the last few years, so I, I might take this year um, and only go to, to one or two races and and, and spend some time with the family, um, and then the, the next three years really, really get back at it, but we'll see. It's kind of part good. of me still, part of me really wants to race, and the, the missus is, is telling me, get, I think she wants to get me out of the house more. <laughs> so just kind of taking it day by day we'll see so I, I have until the end of this week to make my decision um, but it's looking like a pretty full schedule for this winter so I got a lot I got a lot of things to do I'm probably going to do it um, I think, yeah, so, I think so you I'm, should do it if my opinion matters yeah <laughs> 
But yeah, summertime is just is uh, mountain bike season here in Utah. Mountain biking and hiking. So uh, that's that's usually what I do for my cross training in the summer. Is a lot of downhill mountain biking. We got some awesome uh, mountain bike terrain here, and there's a couple couple resorts that have some really awesome trails that they've got built up with some you know nice jumps and drops and. Uh, and they got a chairlift that takes you to the top, so you don't have to pedal up. <laughs> oh, wow. So you mountain bike, too. You're like, yep. Jesus, yep. man. <laughs> yeah, mountain bike in the summer, snowboard in the winter. That's awesome. Good for you, man. That's Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's pretty good. So. so so you being out on the West Coast, you know, living in Salt Lake City, how did you find yourself speaking at the Corman Ball last year down in Jacksonville, Florida? <laughs> Oh, so HM1 hair, or, uh, no, God, who was it? Oh, my God, I got a, I got a mental block. <laughs> Who's, uh, oh, this is terrible. I hope he's not listening right now. He's like, that, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think, I'll think of his name in a minute. I totally have a, a mental block. Um, the... Your chief, your MMR chief, that was uh, at the command for the naval hospital out there. We, he was our HM1, my last deployment in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he was in charge of putting the ball together. And uh, yeah, he thought about, yeah, asked me to come out and tell my story. And um, but that's how I did it. Got that uh, speaking engagement was. Uh, Oh my God, this is killing me. <laughs> I mean, I, I I was at the Kings Bay Clinic, so I, I I mean we're part of the hospital, but I wasn't actually stationed. At yeah, the I know that was a really huge huge command. Um, and uh, so, <laughs> oh, this is really bugging me. This happens to me all of, all the time. I think I think maybe I hit my head somewhere along the way over the last couple of years. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe more than once. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I I do appreciate. Um, uh, like I said, ever since that 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 day at the ball, um, I've kind of you know uh, had your story in the back of my head. Um, and and when I, the the reason I wanted to start this podcast was uh, I PCS'd and and I'm currently ge- uh, geo batching, so I've been away from the wife and kids for a while. Um, it'll be like a year and a half in total. I have to do a batch, but I have a lot of free time now. Pretty much, um, I'm living in the Navy Lodge here in Norfolk right now. Um, so I kind of want to do something constructive with my time. Um, and uh, you know, selfishly, uh, I'm not very good at communicating and, and like talking. Um, so selfishly, I, I kind of want to do the podcast to force myself to be better at that. Um, and uh, you know, on the flip side, obviously, it's there's. Uh, Everyone knows, you know, Michael Murphy, Dakota Meyer, Marcus Luttrell, um, and and rightfully so. But you know, there's a lot of stories out there, you know, like like yours that, you know, may have never been been heard. And, and I kind of want to take it upon myself to kind of to kind of get the get those stories heard and, and kind of do my small part um, because you guys are true heroes, you know, in my mind. Um, so I just kind of want to do my part to kind of get your guys' stories out there. Oh, thank you, man. I think it's great what you're doing, and uh, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to uh, tell my story, and it's been, it's been good talking with you, man. 
Definitely. I mean, we've, we've been going for almost exactly two hours. Definitely hasn't felt like that. No, <laughs> um, it hasn't. You know, and it was funny. Like, I was looking, and I was, I was checking out your, your podcast. I was like, man, you know, some of these go for like an hour or two. I was like, how, how the hell are we going to fill an hour or two? And yeah, we did no problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that, once you get going, it's, it's pretty easy just to kind of keep, you know, keep talking, keep the conversation going. Yeah, um, definitely. You're a great host, my friend. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. it. Well, I don't want to take any more time on your Sunday. Um, you know, go go spend some time with the family. Um, and again, I, I I I truly truly appreciate you taking your time out um, to to kind of talk to little old HM3 here. Hey, sure thing. It's my pleasure, Doc. All right, you have a good one. Definitely, um, I definitely want to stay in touch with you. Um, and, and definitely good luck in, in all your endeavors. You know, with the with the snowboarding and all of that. Um, and I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Hey, thank you, HM3. Fair winds, following seas, and bravo Zulu, man. Thanks for the opportunity to be on your podcast. Hoo ya. You have a good one now. Hey, you too, brother. No, no, no.